Welcome back. The first two episodes this season discuss food, both from the producer point of view and then the consumers. We're shifting gears this week to talk about an industry that I'm in, journalism. I moved to Toronto in 2011 to study journalism at Ryerson University and have stayed in the city ever since. When I first became interested in the field, I thought I could make it in TV. Making it on TV is still a goal of mine, but I also realized shortly after starting at Ryerson that there's a lot of different forms of journalism out there. There's newswire agencies like the Canadian Press, which I currently work at. There's newspapers, radio stations, websites, and TV as well. And then there's magazines. Have you ever dreamed of running a magazine before you hit the age of 25? If so, then this episode is for you. Stay with us. Okay, picture this. You're 22 years old and hear about an editor role opening up at a magazine that you've always admired. They cover social and political activism, and it's really just a dream job. But you're 22. Do you bother applying? Spoiler alert, this week's guest is Erica Lenti, and she did apply. She's now 24 and the editor of this magazine here in Toronto. In this week's show, we discuss everything from the challenges of running a magazine at such a young age to gay characters in video games. Yes, I said that right. Oh, and we also chatted with Erica's dog, Belle. She was adorable. This is the Under the Hill Podcast with Ryan McKenna. How did you land the role of editor at, at this magazine? It's sort of like a really long-winded story, so I'll start a bit from the beginning. Um, so I went to Ryerson University with you, Ryan. This is how we met, yes. And uh, I, we were both in journalism school. Uh, and it was always my passion. I wanted to, I wanted to get into magazines. Uh, I wanted to do long form writing. Uh, I wanted to do more than just daily news. Um, so I started scoping out all of the magazines that were produced in Canada, mainly in Toronto. That's where I'm from. Um, and this magazine came up on my radar. So I subscribed. I read it for a year in my first year of university, and I was like, "This is a really great magazine." It's uh, to give your listeners a bit of yeah. Insight. I was just gonna cut 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 you off and ask yeah. for those who may be listening that don't know what this magazine is. Yeah, maybe explain it a little bit. So it was founded in 1966 as this magazine is about schools um, by like a collective of people who really cared about social activism around education. Um, so we've been around for 51 years this year, uh, and it eventually evolved into just this magazine. Um, the the focus branched out of education into social justice in general. Um, we still t- touch a lot on education, but we also look at like the environment, politics, um, arts and culture. So it's a bit of a general mixed bag, but uh, I would say it's definitely really focused on political activism on the left. Um, and there was a lot of issues that I personally care about, um, you know, LGBTQ issues, issues around women's rights. Um, these were things that I really personally care about. Um, and I was like, this would be really cool to go work at a magazine uh, that's so aligned with my views. Um, so I, I reached out to the editor at the time, Lauren McKeon. Uh, and I, I met up with her for coffee and was like, I will do anything for you. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, you don't have to pay me. I just want to get involved. And she was like, that's awesome. Um, because another fun fact about this magazine is that we have a serious shoestring budget in which we operate because um, we're an independent magazine. 
Um, so I was doing this fact-checking and copy-editing on a volunteer basis. Eventually I started writing shorter pieces. Lorraine and I worked together on longer features. Uh, and then in, I think, 2014, she or 20, maybe 2015, 2015. In 2015, Lorraine asked me um, if I wanted to become a columns editor for the magazine, um, which is also sort of a volunteer position. Uh, and I was like, yeah, because I really wanted to get involved um, with, uh, with, with more editing uh, for magazines. And so I was doing that for about a year before Lorraine decided that she was going to leave her post. Uh, and I was 21 at the time. Um, and was I 21? or tw Maybe I was 20. I was 22 at the time. Um, and the job opened up and I was like, I'm too young to do this. Uh, but Lorraine and our publisher, um, now my colleague, Lisa Whittington-Hill, um, they both really encouraged me to apply for it. Um, they thought that I had you know, the passion and the skill to do it. Uh, so I applied, went through a really long application process, and they chose me. <laughs> so here I am. I'd like to know maybe what your biggest challenge uh, is as an editor of, of this magazine, and does being 24 uh, have any repercussions, or, or does it make some things challenging for you? Yeah, I mean, I think... I think the biggest challenge is probably for us is money, um, just because we are, you know, an independent, we're really small. Um, Lisa and I are the only two full-time staffers here. Um, so because we don't have money, we don't have a ton of resources, I'm the only full-time staffer um, on the editorial side. So I do a lot of work in that respect. It's um, like, it feels like a 24-7 job often. <laughs> um, but with regards to my age, um, I would say that the biggest challenge is having people take you seriously. Um, you know, I am very, very frequently working with writers who are much older than me, um, who are, you know, I've had interns who are older than me, which often feels weird uh, because I, you know, I, I'm like, do I have the authority to be your uh, authority figure? Do I have, am I able to be your authority figure um, when I'm younger than you? Uh, but I think as time has gone on, I've been in this role for over a year now, um, I've realized that age doesn't really affect that. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I've done a lot of work uh, throughout university and through my, my teen years and in my young adulthood that's landed me here. So it's always a case of just reminding myself that I earned the, the position, I earned the role that I'm in, and that I... I do have the authority to to be here and say, yeah, like I'm, I deserve this job, and uh, it's it's okay that these people are older than me. Um, I'm I can still be an authority figure. I know exactly how you feel. Um, yeah. Starting at CP when I was 21, I guess it was, um, and you're, I'm still the youngest one in our department by nine years, I think, and so having, you know that editorial stance where as an editor if you don't feel that something's up to snuff that you know to feel comfortable enough to say something it can be a challenge sometimes especially whenever you're the only person in your your role too yeah and uh we have a we have an, uh, an advisory board as well um and everyone is either in their 30s or 40s and so 
I mean, there's board meetings where I have to sit and present to them, for instance, my plans for the, the year of magazines. So we come out um, every two months. So I have six issues planned and I have to sit around what feels like a bunch of like older people and like vouch for myself and be like, here's what we're going to do for the magazine. Um, and it's sometimes really intimidating. Uh, but I think as time has gone on, I've become more comfortable with it. Um, another challenge that does come up as well is that our readership, because we were founded in 1966, a lot of our readers are older. Um, and so they're, they're getting their magazines from someone who doesn't have as much life experience just or by, maybe as in, in touch with everything that they've gone through in their life precisely yeah so uh that's sometimes a challenge um making sure that i'm not just representing you know my cohort of millennials and and young adults um but also those readers who um you know have have seen you know so much turmoil and turnover in politics um who are still probably dealing with changes socially and progressively. Um, you know, I think they're dealing at a time, for instance, uh, that, uh, you know, they've, they've lived in a time where gay marriage has not, was not legal for longer than it has been legal now, right? Um, so, like, that's probably a bit of a, a, a curve for them. Um, but I think we're, we're pushing the magazine into the future and, and still keeping them in mind, but also moving forward as well, right? In, in terms of issues like gay marriage, for instance, is that something that you guys will write uh, on a regular basis about? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, being more of a left-leaning magazine, most of our older readers are probably more progressive anyway. So we're not we're not getting up against some of these, you know, curmudgeonly older people who are like, the gays shouldn't marry. Um, <laughs> but it's still, you know, um, you know, there's a lot of other. Uh, factions of the LGBTQ community that are really like only coming to light now like you know trans issues are coming to light there's you know gender queer um, identities that are coming more to light that maybe they don't understand as much um, but for the most part I think it's great that we have you know we have young writers we've got a young editor on board that we can explain these things and bring them into the future because I don't think that kind of stuff is going to be going away anytime soon no, I, I, I agree with you 100%. Um, now, in terms of it, you said that uh, it sometimes feels like you're working 24 hours a day. <laughs> what is a normal day look like for you? Oh, God. Um, well, I wake up in the morning, and I have a little dog who's here with us, Belle, um, and she gets walked at, like, 7.30 in the morning, and then once I bring her back, it's around 8 o'clock, and I open my laptop, and I eat my breakfast, and I start checking my email at that time. Um, if there's any sort of major fire or issue that needs to be put out, I will put it out over breakfast. Um, <laughs> otherwise, I'll just sort of look, browse through my email, check Twitter, that kind of thing, and and get a sense of what my day is going to look like. Um, it, it really depends on where we're at in the magazine cycle um, in terms of what my day looks like. So if we're early on in the cycle, I'll be editing drafts. Um, I'll be working with section editors um, to craft their lineups for the issue uh, and help them out if they're looking for writers or if they're having some sort of issue with a piece. Um, uh, if it's later on, then I might be... Um, you know, handing things off to fact checkers. I might be coordinating with our art director to do art stuff, so cover design, um, 
you know, working on layout, that kind of thing. If we're in the last week of magazine production, um, it is completely nuts. Uh, there's like proofing to be done. There's like writers to contact. Uh, there's art to be signed off on and that whole week is usually a blur and I'm here from like nine till seven every day um, and when I get home also like the work doesn't stop I'm always checking my email I'm always like on a, on the phone with a writer I'm in constant contact with our publisher but so, you enjoy this the thrill and like the I love the it. busyness yeah yeah I love it and uh, it's really I said it to you before it's a dream job. Um, I love magazines. I love how they come together. I love the physical, tangible um, ability to hold something that you've produced. Um, magazines are are amazing form of journalism. They provide all this analysis that we don't get out of newspaper journalism often. Um, so to be able to to be the the sort of leading person behind getting a magazine together and getting it out onto stands and into people's hands, um, that's it's amazing. Yeah, it's it's super cool. Whenever I first reached out to you to come on this podcast, you were in the middle of that craziness week <laughs> that you had just talked about yeah. for your guys' latest issue. Um, what uh, maybe highlight one of the pieces that you really enjoyed from from that magazine? Sure. So it was our culture issue that was uh, being put together. It was our November December issue, and the theme was technology. Um, and we were really, really lucky. Um, one of the great perks of doing this job and working at a magazine that has such a great history is that we have so many amazing alumni. Uh, and so I managed to ask Clive Thompson, who is a columnist at Wired, a magazine I love. Um, he also, I believe he's a contributing writer or editor at New York Times Magazine. Um, he's a former editor here. But, back in the 90s. No way. Yeah, so we asked, and he's a big tech writer, so I asked him if he would be willing to write an essay about anything of his liking for the issue, and he was so awesome. We had long conversations on the phone about what he wanted to do, um, and the piece turned out really cool. It was about like social media and how the way that reverse chronology on social media like Twitter and Facebook keeps us from preserving our history. So um, the fact that there's always a new update on top of an update means that we miss so much and all of that just kind of falls to the, to the side when we're, when we're on social media. Um, I think the great example from the piece was he was like, have you ever, have you ever tried to look for a tweet um, from two days ago just simply using your timeline? It's impossible. Uh, no, no, I follow too many people. Exactly, it's impossible, <laughs> yeah. and unless you follow like two people, it's probably it's you'll probably never pretty find. much impossible. Yeah. yeah. So um, he was like, "That's it's sort of detrimental to our history," and it was actually something that he that he found was um, predicted by Harold Innes, this pioneer of com of communications, Canadian, um, when he was looking at the switch from like. Uh, to paper for newspapers. He was like, the newspaper becomes so disposable. Um, we have all of this news in there, and then the next day we just toss it out and we t get another one. He was like, what are we doing to preserve that? And Clive kind of equates social media to that idea that there's so much news happening, um, but then the next day there's just an update, update on top of update on top of update um, that you just really can't keep up with things. And I thought it was a really interesting piece. Um, that one's more of a sort of thoughtful... Uh, you know, not really pegged to any sort of news essay, um, but we've also got some really great pieces, um, a feature about racism in Canada's video game industry, um, 
a piece about what will happen to millennials when they run for office and uh, or public office and all of their uh, social media is <laughs> <laughs> filled with photos of them smoking from bongs and falling drunkenly downstairs, etc. Um, actually, by one of our former J school um, uh, colleagues, Alicia Sani. Oh no way! Yeah, and uh, then a few. Who is an advisor on this podcast, Alicia that's, Sani? That's awesome. Uh, <laughs> she was lovely, and there's much more in there. I, I think it's just a great issue. Technology is. I love I love you know technology. I love computers. Um, so it was really exciting for me to work on. Earlier, you had said, "Do you want me to explain how we sort of got here?" Uh, yeah. And now is the time that we're going to talk about that. <laughs> so you've previously been with the Walrus and Torontoists. Um, what did those experiences and what did you learn from there uh, help you in order to get here where you are now? So yeah, I was at the Walrus. Um, Pretty briefly, but I've maintained some, you know, relationships there, and that was sort of my first big magazine gig uh, out of school. I did some internships and stuff, but you know, you hear the Walrus, and that's like comes with Ooh, a certain the walrus. Yeah, comes with a certain sense of prestige. Yep. So it was really exciting to be there and to just be um, surrounded by people in the industry who've done this for many, many years and who are so passionate. Um, and who have thrived, right? Like seeing that there is a magazine where you can have a career and you can, there's, there's folks there who are in their, you know, 30s and 40s who've been in magazines their whole lives. And that just really inspires me because it means there might be a path for me from here. I mean, a lot of people talk about journalism dying and there being no jobs. Um, so to be there was a really great fresh breath of fresh air. Um, to see that it was possible to, to have a career in this. Um, and then just to also be surrounded by like really smart people <laughs> all the time um, and to like fact check and work alongside um, uh, these really great writers who you read about and then the fact that you're interacting with them on like a one-on-one basis just like sort of blew my mind. Um, so I was a I was a fellow I should say there that um, that that entailed sort of writing for the web and doing a lot of fact checking for the magazine, uh, and that was a really great job. And then this opportunity came up while I was there um, for a full time gig. So always hard to say no to full time work it, and salary work. It is. Work, it is. Um, at Torontoist, which is owned by St. Joseph's Me- St. Joseph Media, which at the time of us recording this. Um, the, the folks who had originally licensed the name was it was the Gothamist group who was just shut down by their like billionaire investor. Um, if St. Joseph Media did not purchase Torontoist back in I don't remember the year, 2009, 2010, um, Torontoist would be currently dead. No way. So um, I feel really, really like grateful that um, that it's still going. Uh, Torontoist is this sort of sm- smaller um, urban hub for news about the city, it's for policy wonks, it's for people who want to follow city council really closely. Um, Some of its best work came from reporting on the Rob Ford era. Um, My former colleague David Haynes uh, did this amazing recap every Sunday of the Rob and Doug Ford show on um, what was it? It was News Talk 1010. News Talk 1010. Um, Like this amazing, and he would get so many tidbits out of that just because people weren't really listening and he was listening really closely and and, um, archiving all of these things they said on there. 
Um, so really great reporting there. Uh, I got the opportunity to be the deputy editor, so David and I worked hand in hand to produce all of the content for the site. Um, so the one thing about Torontoist that I, I learned a lot from was similarly to this magazine, um, there was not a lot of money. Uh, and, and trying to get folks to write for not a lot of money is tough, but you, you really have to find people who are really passionate, who want a platform. Um, you have to offer like a really awesome working relationship for them to keep wanting to work with you. Um, you've, gotta, you've, you've really got to be persistent with folks. Uh, and so I learned a lot about managing writers and managing um, a publication with very little money and just being creative with the resources that you have. Um, obviously, Torontoist was more of a daily publication, um, which helped me realize I don't really love <laughs> working um, for dailies. I really, it's tough. Yeah, it's really tough. And I, I just didn't feel like I was thriving in that environment. Um, but I still really loved it. It gave me a lot of opportunity. Uh, my favorite thing that I did there was um, in June of 2016, uh, Toronto had its very first Pride Month. And I basically coordinated an entire month of uh, Pride coverage of some sort. So every single day for the month of June, we had at least one LGBTQ-related story on the site. Frequently, there was more than that. Um, and I felt like we did a really good job there. Um, something that a lot of publications that are more mainstream, that are not so focused on queer issues, like Daily actually does this all the time, for instance, um, but you don't see the Toronto Star or uh, Metro News, for instance, devoting that much space to LGBTQ content. So I felt really proud that we were able to do that. Um, and then shortly after that, this job came up. So I was able to leave that as my, my sort of legacy there that we, we had done so much. Yeah. And going from having little financial resources to paying to be uh, to produce a magazine at the Ryerson Review of Journalism. Uh, um, yes. What was that experience like? Because you were, I forget your exact title. I was there. the editor-in-chief. You were the editor-in-chief there, um, whereas I was the newsroom manager over at the Sony. So we were sort of exactly hand-in-hand, hand, I guess. But uh, no, what were some of the challenges that you faced there? And overall, what was that experience like? So it was arguably the best experience of my undergraduate career at Ryerson um, and it really did um, solidify my passion for magazines for sure um, but uh, I think the main issue I came up with was that there were some people who were treating it like a school project um, for those who aren't familiar with the Ryerson Review of Journalism uh, it's produced by journalism students but it's also sold on newsstands and um, at Indigo? Yeah, and you can also subscribe to it and receive it at your doorstep. Uh, and a majority of the subscribers are big players in the industry. Um, so it's, it wasn't sort of like just a school project that your professor sees and grades and then that's it, doesn't really see the light of day. Um, it was a really serious project. Uh, so trying to manage students, um, I, I mean, I will, I will say that there were quite a few on the masthead who were really devoted, who I had, I have really fond memories of working with. They're all lovely people. So many of them have moved on to do great things. Um, Simon Bredden, I should give a shout out. He's now the editor-in-chief at Torontoist, so we're, we're all sort of in the same little um, bubble. But um, I, I think there were some folks who were like, 
I'm not going to commit the number of hours and the amount of work that is required to make this a really, you know, to make this really great, um, which meant that the folks who were really devoted had to um, sort of <laughs> throw more weight behind themselves and, and uh, re- work overtime to get the magazine to where it needed to be. I unfortunately know all too well about that, yeah. uh, being at the Sonian, because you're essentially like, I, I don't know if this happened to you, but there were several people that came to me and with their their problems and their issues and, and their grievances. And I'm sitting here like, guys, I'm not getting paid anything. <laughs> you guys are the ones being paid to be here. Like, if you have a problem, go and talk to that person about it. There's not much that I you can really necessarily mm-hmm. do. But at the same time, and this seems to be this recurring trend, it that, that experience, I know it helped for me, but that experience seems to have then led to uh, a better idea of how to manage people in the future, whether it be here at this magazine or at Torontoist or, or whatever, you, uh, the various roles that you had at, at Walrus. I totally agree, yeah. And I, I think that I definitely made mistakes. Uh, I was, you know, I was pretty young while I was doing it. I think I was 19. We're, we're yeah, yeah, 20, 21 yeah. Uh, when I first, yeah, when I first started, I think I was 19 and I had turned 20 while I was doing it. So I was still, you know, and I was also managing folks who were like 25, Yeah, which is not a huge difference, but I, I did, I was aware that I was the youngest person in the room and I was the youngest on the masthead. Um, but I, I also worked with master students. I don't know if you did as well. So, uh, I forget, but yeah, there was also a sense of like, you're just an undergraduate. Why are you the editor? Why are you telling me what to do? Um, versus like, you know, me just being there being like, this is my role, my job. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Um, I I think I, there were definitely times where I could have handled it better. Uh, it taught me a lot about stress. It taught me a lot about managing stress with other people. Um, and it also taught me a lot about just like realizing that yes, your project is really important. Um, and it's it has to get done, but also at the end of the day, it is just a magazine, and there are people behind it, and you've got to be really sensitive to people. You've got to be really sensitive to yourself as well, um, and not push yourself too far. Because there were definitely nights that I think the second last night before we went to print, we started at 9 a.m. and we stayed there till like three in the morning, and then the next day we came back in for 9 a.m. <laughs> like that was not. That was definitely not um, conducive or yeah. productive in any way. Um, so yeah, I would never do that here at this magazine. I learned my lesson back when I was younger and still in school. I guess that's what it's for. Yes, yes, it is. Uh, yeah. Part of the the learning experience. Um, I wanted to pivot a little bit from magazines, and I noticed something in your Twitter bio that that uh, piqued my interest a little oh bit. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Uh, you write queer deconstructions of video games. Yes, and I have to say, slight caveat, I haven't written as many as I want to because this job takes up so much of my time. That's okay. But the whole title slash concept, I, I was like, what What the heck is this? Could, could you explain that a little bit? Sure. It started as a joke, to be honest. Okay. So um, there was a magazine... Um, Les Spread the Word, which is a new newer magazine out of Montreal, um, and it's it's a lesbian magazine for Canadians, uh, and they were accepting pitches, and I was chatting with my friend Megan, um, also an RRJer, so it all comes back. All the RRJ connections um, And she was like, I don't know what I'm going to pitch, and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to pitch either. I was like, I'm sitting here playing Super Mario Maker on my Wii U. 
I may as well just pitch something about like Super Mario. <laughs> and I made a joke. I was like, what if I just wrote about how Bowser's gay and Bowser's a lesbian? And it just grew into this like ridiculous thing. But like, where did you come up with that? I have no concept. idea. Like I, I was like playing Super Mario and I was like, out of all of the like main characters in Super Mario, who's the most likely to be a big gay? And I was like, Bowser. <laughs> and so we were like joking around and I wrote this essay afterwards just because I was like oh this is hilarious and I wrote this essay on Medium about how Bowser is like a butch lesbian who is kidnapped not actually kidnapping Peach Princess Peach they're actually in love and Mario is trying to intercept that big gay love and went on and on about like compulsory heterosexuality and like all this stuff (laughs) from like sociological textbooks um and i swear to this day i still get like at least 300 views a week on that piece really like i'm i'm not promoting it or anything and that's just on your blog right Yeah, yeah yeah um so after that like um Uh, an editor that I really respect, Emily Keeler, was like, I would read a newsletter of this stuff if you sent it out, like, every once in a while. And I was like, this is amazing. Great idea. And so I started a tiny letter um, called Big Gay Games. And um, I just basically write these, like, really satirical, like, ridiculous essays about it. Um, Okay, so they're satirical. You don't necessarily have... I mean, there's still... Okay, to, to be fair, I think there's still some importance to querying... I, I generally do, like, classic video games from, like, the 90s, 80s yeah. and 90s. I noticed you did one on Sonic the Sonic Hedgehog. the Hedgehog, yeah. yeah. So, which I... These are, like, games I grew up with. And I think the concept behind it was, like, here are these games that were part of my childhood and were important to me, but, like, all of these storylines, like, for instance, in Super Mario, it's, like, oh, like, Peach needs, like, a big burly plumber to save her like she's like this damsel in distress and like she needs a man to save her and I relate no way to that (laughs) so I was like what are some ways that like I could relate to this had I known it in my childhood or like teenhood and so in yes it's really ridiculous and it is literally um, grounded in no real evidence like I'm I'm like tails Tails is gay or whatever, like, Tails from Sonic the Hedgehog is probably not written as a gay character in any way. Um, like, just as Bowser is not a bush lesbian. Um, but, like, it's, it, it is grounded in some way um, as, like, uh, commentary on the fact that queer video game characters are still few and far between. Like, there's more availability there. Um, nowadays, there's lots of newer games that have these queer undertones. Um, but, like, well, that's what I was just going to say, and, and that's a, an interesting part of why I brought it up, because I, I play video games yeah. quite frequently as well, not necessarily, like a lot of sports games mostly, yeah, yeah. but still, the presence of gay characters in video games, yeah. it's non-existent from what I know, at least. I mean, yeah, there's some games that have been more blatantly queer, um, but, but I would say in recent like, you know, the last decade or whatever, it's been more coded. So um, there are players who can, you know, be like, oh, like, there's definitely, like, some queer love story between so-and-so, but it's never blatantly said. Um, and so the, the the writing that I've been doing has mostly just been super blatant as a, a commentary on that, like, let's just get it out there. Like, gay people are, are exist, and, like, there should be more gay characters. Um, at the same time, it's just also really funny. Like, yeah, ridiculous. it's hilarious. Um, I mean, I, part of it as well, since you 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 know you mentioned it's like non-existent. I mean, 
I think about like how um, you know people get upset when there are like female characters who are like I, I think I don't know what year it was, but like when um, it was revealed that Metroid was actually a woman players freaked out really yeah and they were like a woman like i've been playing as a like male character uh, male players were like i've been playing as a female character this entire time and they were really pissed off about it um so i think it's part of that as well like so much of video games is still so heavy heavily male dominated it's still so heavily heterosexual um yet like so many gamers are female so many gamers don't just identify as straight um, don't just identify as cisgender. So it's I, I think it's really important to have that visibility. Absolutely, sure. absolutely. Um, I also noticed that you were spreading the word to uh, Mario this weekend about, oh. about Bowser. <laughs> yeah, um, my friend Emily Emily Rivas, also a Ryerson Folio um, uh, alumni and someone who went to Ryerson with us, um, she got like this invite to a Nintendo holiday party and was like, "Come with me and." The whole time, I was like, I was like, I'm gonna tell Mario, like, <laughs> Bowser's so gay, and also like making these ridiculous co- like comments all night, um, which is very fun, I have to say. It's oh, all it was, in good fun. It was very funny. Thanks very much, Erica. Thank you. That was Erica Lenti. She's the editor of this magazine here in Toronto. We'll post a link to where you can find the magazine on our social media pages and website. That does it for episode three of our show. If you know of someone that might have an interesting and intriguing story to tell, or a trend that should be discussed, tell me about it. I can be found on Twitter or Facebook, at Ryan B. McKenna. That's all one word, at Ryan B. McKenna. Special thanks this week to AT Media and Entertainment, which provided editing help for this episode. Alicia Sani is an editor on the show. Music this week is provided by Bray Skierman. This was the Under the Hill podcast with Ryan McKenna. Thanks for listening. And so long now.